Open your Bibles tonight to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. I want to sort of follow up on the sermon this morning about commitment. Again, I I just pray that that's not in any way misunderstood. I I don't want to be the pastor who who manipulates people through guilt or or, or any other thing. I want you to be motivated by the love of Christ and by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about something like the triple two challenge, that that, that is not in any way to heap uh, any kind of burden on you. I I just want you to to love the Lord wholeheartedly, and I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, At the same way, I want us to look in Psalm 78 about a very, very important task that we have as a church. Uh, It is the perpetual task of the church, uh, and one which is always in some ways uh, uh, fragile when you stop and think about it. They say, and you've heard me say, that the church is always one generation away from extinction. One generation away from extinction. The idea is if we don't manage to pass the faith along to the coming, the emerging generation, then we die. Uh, we, we, we simply die out. Uh, when I mentioned this morning that Woodburn Baptist Church at the turn of the century had 52 cents, and that's in the minutes, 52 cents. After they spent $15 on hitching posts, they had 52 cents left in, in the budget, and that is what brought them into the, the, the 20th century, and I, and I find that absolutely amazing. I don't really know what they did with that 52 cents next, but I can tell you they managed to pass the faith along to generation after generation. And that, my friends, is, is success. We're making disciples, but we're always making disciples, I pray, of our own children and of other people's children. Capturing the next generation with the gospel is always, always very imperative. But I want to turn a corner with you now and have you think about commitment in these terms. I would say that your very first lessons in commitment are learned in the family. Understand what I'm saying? Your very first lessons in commitment are learned in your family. Now, some of these are positive lessons, perhaps. Some of these are negative lessons. But, but, but your ability to, to think of commitment, your ability to relate to examples and models of commitment, the first lessons you learn in commitment are learned in, in, in the family. And with that, I want us to look at, at chapter 78, uh, Psalm 78 tonight. This morning, I discussed uh, commitment and distractions. I said that one of our uh, goals in life is to be able to know priorities from, from distractions. I use that picture of that bee in the car, and, and, and I mentioned that the world always has distractions swarming at us. It's not just the world. Understand, you have an enemy. We, we all have an enemy. He is the, the devil, and he uh, has nothing else to do but study us, and he is bent toward our destruction. And he's very, very patient as an enemy. That means he will always wait for an opportune time. So, so understand this. Uh, the distractions that would draw us away from commitment, they tend to come at critical moments. Follow me here. The distractions from your faith, the distractions from your commitment, they tend to come at very critical moments because the devil knows when to hit you. And so in those moments when your faith is fragile, maybe it's, it's a particularly shaky time for you in your faith, the devil is going to line the distractions up for you. If he can pull you away from your commitment in the moments when your faith is already shaky, then you understand he takes one step closer to defeating your faith, to, to having you give up your faith. 
So he always watches when, when your faith is shaky, he'll be there to provide distractions. He'll also be there to provide distractions, I believe, right before God wants to give you some great blessing. Maybe before some wonderful breakthrough in the faith, when God is about to do something wonderful for you, when you're about to go to the next step, I believe that the devil will be there in those moments. Any of those critical points in your faith, I believe the devil will be there to provide distractions. If he can draw you away in those times, then you miss what God has for you next. And the devil would always love to take away what God's trying to pour into your life. Does that make sense? And I would say the third very critical moment, the the very critical moment is in that moment, if if you're a parent or if you have children uh, whom you influence, I believe a critical moment is is in that moment when you're passing faith along to children and, and youth. And I believe it's at those times when the devil will absolutely begin to throw distractions at you. If you're parents and you have children in the home, if he can possibly draw you as the parent away from your commitment at that juncture, if at the only time in your life he can get you to take your eye off of Christ while you have children, do you understand? He wins a great victory not only in your life but in the lives of your children. I think that's why when we are parents with young children or, or again, when we have children under our influence as aunts and uncles or or teachers or or neighbors, whenever we have that ability to influence a child's faith, I believe the devil is always there with distractions. He would love to pull us away in that very critical moment. And as I said, for the church, it's always a critical moment. It's always a moment when we are... We are necessarily passing the faith along to to the emerging generation. If the devil can distract us from that, he he wins a great victory and truly could destroy our church if we manage to drop the ball with the next generation. Psalm 78, let's read the word and then talk a little bit about kids these days. Psalm 78, this is good. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past, stories we have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob, he gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. I love that. And they, in turn, will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew. I love that. Set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. Let's let's just stop there. It's interesting how that whole passage ends there at at, at verse 8. All of this important emphasis on passing it on to the generation, even children not yet born, so that when they come along, they can teach it to their children. But then there's that haunting, haunting verse 8. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. There is in Israel's history here that, that lost generation. There's a generation that that was lost, and a generation that has to be recaptured. 
As I said, the, the task of passing faith along to the next generation is as old as the earth. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. So is there anything different about the task of passing on the faith to, to kids these days? Anything different about that? Yeah, uh, Dale says there are actually more distractions for the kids. Uh, is that true? It's an honest question. You think so? I'm asking the older folks. Is there just more distraction for kids these days? Yeah, okay. Lots of people saying yes. Yeah, just more distractions these days. Yeah. When, when my dad was a kid, the only thing there was to play with was a corn cob. Yeah, they, they played with corn cobs. Uh, they'd soak them in the pond and, and use them as weapons, throw them at each other. Uh, yeah, th there just wasn't much uh, for, for kids back in those days. More distractions. What do you say, Jack? Yeah, yeah, we as parents often act like this is out of our control, but, but we often, we pay for those distractions. We, we bring them into the house, and then we wonder why our kids ignore us. We fill the house with very, very high-priced distractions and then wonder why the kids text 24 hours a day. We, we really do have some control over that, but, but, but the point remains, kids these days have incredible distractions, distractions from everything, but especially distractions from faith. What else? Is the task very different? Different, Claude. Yeah. And it is tremendously difficult to plan a week where you can conduct a Yeah, very difficult. A Camp Joy or any place else to take a week and, and try to eliminate the distractions. If you got rid of all the toys, all of the electronics, if you got rid of the TVs and the telephones, they still have hearts that are distracted by brokenness. Uh, by, by sinfulness, by the troubles they bring from home. I, 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 absolutely. Andrew. Yeah, I tend to go with you, Andrew. This is a rather amazing generation. I would give a kidney out of my body to be a teenager today. 
I, I think that it's an amazing time to grow up. It's an amazing time to be serving the Lord. I, I wish I were starting my ministry now. I, I would give anything to be starting now. I just simply think that this generation is particularly blessed and poised to make a real, real impact for, for, the, for the kingdom. But they do have their challenges. They do have their distractions. I would say that. But I think every generation has its challenges. Have you not listened to your grandparents talk about growing up in the Depression? Have you not heard all of that? Uh, there are old people who would love to just sit you down and tell you about how they rationed sugar and how they rationed everything. I mean, they had challenges too. In the 50s, that generation had challenges. In the 60s, they had challenges. The 70s, we had our challenges. My, my, my goodness, we had Horrible challenges. We wore bell bottoms and everything else. We were so uh, challenged. Uh, every generation faces its unique challenges. But let's talk about the unique challenges that kids these days face. And some of this information comes from a man named Tim Elmore, who is an excellent, excellent scholar uh, th these days. He talks about two things that make this generation different. The first thing he stresses is what he calls artificial maturity. Kids these days have a kind of artificial maturity. In other words, Tim Emmel would say they grow up too fast and they grow up too slow at the same time. They grow up too fast and they grow up too slow. They grow up too fast in the sense that for the first time ever in our culture, kids don't need adults for information. Now, do you understand that? Kids don't need adults for, for information. They have they have the internet, they have Google, they have information absolutely bombarding them. So, so kids today are actually overexposed to information way before they're ready. Way before they're ready, they're overexposed to information. This is what makes them kind of grow up too fast. We have preschoolers back there in our preschool wing that you could take them out right now and they could probably run a casino. I mean, they're overexposed to certain kinds of information way too early, but they are underexposed to real-life experiences until way too late. You understand? They grow up too fast, and they grow up too slow. Uh, I've read several articles that talk about adolescence, which is supposed to be the teenage years, that kind of awkward phase between childhood and adulthood. But in our culture, they say that, that that adolescent phase, that awkward phase between childhood and adulthood is stretching out further and further. I heard one guy say that 26 is the new 18. Now, what did he mean by that? 26 is the new 18. It means that where you would have expected a young person several years ago to be sort of an adult at 18, they would be mature at 18. Now that's happening more like 26. Do you all see that? Do you recognize that in the culture around us? You have 23, 24, 25-year-olds who really are, are not mature. They're not growing up. They're growing up too slow, even though they've been overexposed to all of this information. It's not adding up to real maturity. Some people now say that adulthood isn't really starting for a lot of this generation until the age of 34. They're not adults until the age of 34. That's really staggering to me. It's interesting. 
But it's different for this generation. They grow up way too fast. They grow up way too slow. But they end up with this kind of artificial maturity. They have a lot of information, but not a lot of experience. They are underexposed to real-life experiences that would help them mature. Related to that is the whole idea of postponed adulthood, as I said. Uh, kids are hesitant to grow up. It's like they push the pause on adulthood. And honestly, as parents, sometimes we do the very same thing. We, we hold them back. We, we drag them back. We postpone actual m- maturity. So you have this artificial maturity combined with postponed uh, adulthood. Uh, let's talk for a second about how kids these days really might be different from the previous generation. One thing they say about Kids these days, are, are y'all, is it like I'm talking about you right in front of you? Uh, you know what they say about you guys? They say that you are now low in empathy, lower than the previous generation or perhaps your parents. Low in empathy. Now, what is empathy? Yeah, the, the ability to sort of know from the inside what somebody else is feeling, to, to really connect with other people at a relational level. The experts are saying that kids these days are very, very low in empathy. They really don't connect at, at a relational, at an emotional level. Now, why do you think that is? Yeah, Stephanie says, y'all don't talk to each other. Do you talk to each other? You know, used to, used to, my sister especially, but I too, we would stay on the phone. We'd get in a lot of trouble because we'd be on the phone all the time. You remember that? Anybody else as a kid, as a teenager, on the phone all the time? Yeah. Kids these days probably aren't on the phone all the time, but what do they do all the time? Yeah, they've substituted talking for texting. And texting is very different. And I'm not saying texting, I'm not saying it's sinful or that it's awful. It's just what you do. It's different. This is a generation of texters. A generation that would probably rather have a conversation on Facebook or texting than face-to-face. And the problem is there's no emotional content in that kind of conversation. You don't know what another person is thinking. Now, they have some little tricks to help each other out. You have little things like LOL. What does that mean? Yeah, that means I'm laughing out loud. That means I'm joking. So they write a text and say LOL because the other person can't see you smile. They're not hearing you LOL or R-O-F-L. You know what that is? Yeah, rolling on the floor laughing. You see, that's what that stuff means. They have to give each other emotional cues because honestly, those things are lost in a texting conversation. The problem is they're saying that a lot of kids in this generation, they're growing up without a lot of empathy, without that ability to connect emotionally with people. I know a lot of you have had the experience, and it's not just teenagers, it's adults these days who honestly will sit in front of you and have a cell phone conversation. Am I the only one that feels like that's rude? That just always feels rude. I don't understand why you would choose to be with me, but then talk to somebody who's choosing not to be with you. You understand? We're having lunch, and you're talking to somebody who didn't care enough to have lunch, and yet you're spending all of this time with them. Technology, in the way we use it in our culture, it has this really weird effect of separating us from the people we're near and making us feel close to people far away. It separates us from people that we're near to and makes us feel close to people far away. I've reconnected with a friend who lives in Turkey. He's lived in Turkey for the last 20 years. 
I have people who say, where does so-and-so live? Did you know so-and-so moved to, I had a friend who moved to Las Vegas. I've been on Twitter with him for the last two years. I thought he was in Bowling Green. I, I had no idea. Do you understand? It's this real strange way of feeling close, but, but there's no closeness here. I, I feel strangely close to someone far away, and at the same time, it, it separates from people that we're actually close to. It really is kind of annoying when a person will sit right in front of you and text somebody else, you understand? It's this really strange kind of separation. It's, it's a low empathy. They're calling uh, this generation slacktivists. And you've heard the term activist. What's an activist? person who wants to change the world, an activist. What's a, what's a slacktivist? Okay, what's a slacker? A slacker? Somebody who does it, yeah, a lazy person. So they're calling this generation slacktivists, which means they kind of want to change the world. Yeah, they just kind of want to change the world, but, but probably not going to put a lot into it. We've talked about technology. Do you understand that technology for this generation is an appendage? How many of you guys sleep with your cell phone? Go ahead. We're not going to laugh. Sleep with your cell phone. How many of you know that they sleep with their cell phones? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, we'll tell on you. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not creepy. It's not creepy. Probably better than a teddy bear, to to be honest. (laughs) They sleep with the cell phone. They're not going to miss that 3 a.m. text. Somebody could be R-O-F-L-ing at 3 in the morning. You don't want to miss that. It's really strange. Now, my son, who's an amazing young man, I'm not going to embarrass him, but Wade, if he falls asleep on the couch with his cell phone, if you wake up and say, wait, go to bed, with his eyes closed, barely awake, he'll reach around and grab the cell phone, walk to bed like this. Yeah, you know, even in a semi-conscious state, he's conscious enough to grab the phone. It's an appendage. It's, and not just kids. Some of you are the very same way. I have heard at least three cell phones ring in the course of this worship service. Understand? Why can't you live without that? It's an appendage. It's an appendage. It's very, very different for us these days, and it affects us. They say that the generation growing up right now is very self-absorbed. Self-absorbed. In other words, they think a lot about themselves. Now, I don't mean that. It's just a fact of their lives, and it has a lot to do with the way we've raised them. The problem is kids these days have a real strange contradiction inside of them, especially a lot of teenagers. They have... What experts say is this combination of very high arrogance. Kids are arrogant. What's that mean? They think a lot of themselves in a strange way. If you ask kids these days what they want to be when they grow up, a lot of them will just say, famous, going to be a celebrity. They've just sort of grown up with this idea that anybody can become famous, and they're about this close from becoming a rap star. It's just very high arrogance, but it's combined with very low self-esteem. It's a very, very painful kind of mix inside a young heart. This high arrogance, that comes from the way we raised them. From the moment they were born, we told them that they were loved, and, and they are loved. We told them that they're special. Barney told them they were special every single day. We told them they were special and, and unique, valuable, that they could be anything they wanted to be. We told them that from day one. And so they have this sort of high arrogance. They've received medals and trophies for just showing up. They never had to accomplish anything in order to be told you're valuable, you're wonderful, you're the greatest kid in the world. 
The problem is, as they move into the real world, the messages are very different. Because honestly, the message of the real world is, you really aren't that important. Am I wrong? The real world will tell you quickly, you're really not that important. You're going to die. I mean, honestly, that's the adult truth. You're going to die. You're really not that important. And that's difficult. It's this combination of very high arrogance, but very, very low, very, very low self-esteem. As a result, kids these days are usually very ambiguous about the future. If you ask college students to describe the way they feel about their lives, 94% of college students use one word to describe their lives. Overwhelming. Overwhelming. Again, if you follow my son on Facebook, you see a status one day this week. He said, I am going to unfriend all of my college friends because they make me never want to go to college. Yeah. The college friends are just writing all of these war stories from college. It's this ambiguity about the future. Do you understand? Kids these days grow up with, with a really, really odd predicament. But because, listen to this, it has never been more pleasurable to be a kid. I mean, the adolescent world, the teenage world, the high school world, it has never been more pleasurable to be young. Do you understand that? Do you see that? It's, it's amazing. At the same time, the adult world has never been so complex. The, the teenage world looks great. No wonder they postpone adulthood. No wonder you're sort of worried that right now, one of these days, your daughter's still going to be eating beans out of the can in your basement. Because the idea of how to get them to move from, from the, the, the world of youth into the world of adulthood, that passage has become very, very difficult. And kids these days aren't doing a very good job of it. So back to Psalm chapter 78. What is our responsibility? What must we give them? This has not changed. Our responsibility has not changed. And honestly, the tools with which we will do this job haven't changed all that much. The challenges of this generation are unique, but the challenges facing your generation were unique. And the task facing us as the older generation has not changed. We must give them what? Knowledge of God, we must give them basic knowledge of God. Psalm 78, back to verses uh, to 2 and 3. I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past, stories we have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation what? About how hard we had it when we were young. Is that what we want to tell them? We want to tell them what a dollar's worth. How we walked to school uphill both ways in the snow. Yeah. yeah. Is that what it says? We want to tell our children. We want to tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord. About his power and his mighty wonders. We want to tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord. We're going to tell them stories Stories. Do you understand? Stories. This is actually one of the longest psalms in Scripture, and it's all about what God has done. It is the generation telling the upcoming generation what God has done. 
Do you understand? This is our primary task. We've got to set their hearts on fire for what God has done, the glorious deeds of God. That means we got to know the stories, but it also means we should have lived some of the stories. I think we have a certain obligation to live before our children in such a way where we leave some incredible stories, awesome stories. One day when we're all gone and all you people are old and your children are sitting in this section, God help them, I hope you guys have some stories to tell about us. Don't you want that to be true? I mean, my goodness, don't you want to have some great stories about Nick Hickman and Zach Wren? Don't you still want to be telling stories about Jimmy White and Adrian Cato, J.C. Maxwell? Oh, my goodness, you have to explain to your kids how J.C. Maxwell texted every word in all capital letters. It's just awesome, awesome. But not just stories about us. Not just stories about what characters we were, the funny things we said and did. We want stories left about what God did in our lives. Awesome stories, exciting stories, stories that would make people's hair curl. I want stories about how God was faithful, stories about how we trusted God, stories about how we stepped out and took risks for God and how God came through in a giant way. Don't you want to have stories to tell like that? My God. Goodness, my goodness, you think all we're going to have is we walked in the snow to school both ways? No wonder they don't listen to us. Let's tell them what God's done in our lives, and let's have something to tell. I mean, get a story to tell. Go out and do something for God. Get a story to tell your children and grandchildren. It's not too late. You're not dead yet. Live something for God. Do something for God. Have stories to tell. Read Psalm 78. The people had stories to tell. Not because they're great people, because he's a great God. He's a great God. And when we live for him, he's going to do great things in our lives. And we got to tell those stories. you got to live those stories and, and tell those stories. I said, I've worn it out today. Woodburn Baptist Church said 52 cents. 52 cents. Now let me ask you, to be honest, do you want to be the church, the generation that has 52 cents to come into the next century? Do you want to be that group? Because that sounds kind of lame. I mean, to have 52 cents, the whole church, if we all put all of our money in a pot, we got 52 cents, and we're stepping into the 20th century. Do you want to be that group? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because when they had almost nothing, you understand? God was everything they had. Man, God was everything when they had almost nothing. See, we have this tendency not to let ourselves get down to nothing. We would like a little more security, a little more backup. We don't let ourselves disappear into God like that. But look what God did with a group of people who would just give the 52 cents they had and their lives. Oh, my goodness, they've left such stories. They've left such a legacy, such a church. What are we going to leave? What stories are we going to have to tell? we got to live stories. we we got to leave stories. I mean, my goodness, we owe our children a life not just of faithfulness but of courageous faithfulness. 
I mean, don't you want Dax and, and Max and don't you want Caitlin and, and Dylan? Don't you want Kobe and Kaylee? Don't you want Sarah and Riley to grow up in a church with God's people doing God's work in, in, in God's way? Don't you want our kids to grow up like that? It's not going to happen by accident. And their lives are passing by so quickly. Our lives are passing by quickly. This is all we get. I mean, nights like tonight are the only nights in the world that we're going to have to tell them stories about what God has done. We need, need to make sure that God's doing something in our lives. We owe it to them. We owe it to God. Go back to verse 2 but because it's interesting the way the Scripture talks about itself. I will teach you, what's the phrase there? I will teach you hidden, hidden lessons from our past, stories we have heard and, and known. That, that phrase, hidden questions, the Hebrew actually says dark things, dark sayings. It's the idea of, of a very difficult question or even something that's perplexing like a riddle. What does that mean? We want to pass on to our children the, 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 the dark sayings, the, the hidden lessons from, from the past. What's hidden? I mean, isn't it obvious? Isn't the truth of God always obvious? What God is doing in our lives, what God has done in our past, isn't that always obvious? Of course not. Of course it's not obvious. Jack, go ahead. Yeah, back to Jill's children's sermon about how, was it your, your cousin or your aunt, Jill? It was your cousin who took the time to, to pass some important things on to the next generation. That's amazing. That, that, that's important. It is the idea that, that the valuable things sometimes, the important things, the, the, the truths of God, what it all means, what God was doing, that does get lost on people. It is not obvious to everybody. It takes eyes of faith. It takes a heart that is, that is completely soaked in the gospel sometimes to see what God is doing. And we have to be able to interpret our lives, interpret the past. It's not just that we suffered much, you understand? It's that God was with us in our suffering. And even in the pain of our lives, God turned that pain into something so beautiful and so good that I'm here to praise God even for the dark times. You understand? It takes a wise heart. It takes a person who's lived some and a person who's learned the lessons of the gospel and the lessons of their lives so that they can pass on what wouldn't be obvious, what wouldn't be obvious to the next generation unless somebody was there to, to sort of uncover what was hidden. Honestly, sometimes they hear us talk and they don't understand what in the world we're supposed to be saying. They don't understand why it's supposed to be important because honestly, sometimes we don't know what is important. We have no idea what's important. We try to push so much on the next generation that's not important. We try to push so much on them that, that's not the gospel. We want them to, to dress like we dress, or we want them to sing the songs and love the songs that we love. And I'm telling you, that's not the gospel. And it's probably not even the hidden lessons of our past. We need to figure out what treasures are actually worth passing on, and then spend everything in passing those things on. Do you understand? They're not going to be just like us. They're not going to do it like we did it, but they need to know the God that we have known. Hidden lessons, the psalmist says. 
you know, t- t- two more things I-, I think that we must give our kids. And I want, I want us as a church to really think about this. I said that, that their maturity is kind of artificial because they have information overload way too early with, with an underexposure t- to real life experience. I think we need to give them experiences. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, my goodness. Do you remember what it's like to be a kid? You love excitement. You love excitement. You know, th- th- that's why you would take two pigs out in the field and tie their tails together just to see what would happen. You just needed excitement. You were dying for I- excitement. Kids long for I- excitement. And-, and they want connection. They want to feel like they're a part of something big and-, and something thrilling and something important. Don't you remember that? Do you remember going to a Rolling Stones concert or whatever concert you went to, the Lawrence Welk show? I don't know what you went to. But just that, that amazing feeling of being somewhere big where people are excited and and it feels so very important to be there and to experience something with others. Kids want that. They're starving for that. And they will go wherever they find that kind of connection and, and excitement. They want experiences. And God help us. All we've got for them is an annual trip to King's Island. God help us. God help us if our kids think the only excitement we have to offer is the drop zone at Kings Island. We're God's people on a great commission to do God's work in the whole world. And Kings Island's all we've got for them. My goodness, we got to give them experiences, real experiences. What are we waiting for? What are you guys waiting for? What, they're going to turn 18 and then what? All of a sudden we're going to turn them loose? We don't turn them loose then either. The problem is we're not having a lot of real experiences. We're like those crazy caterpillars walking in a circle around the, the flower pot thinking that movement is somehow direction. Did you understand? We don't have real experiences. We borrow stories from other churches. We talk about what God's doing other places, but, but what's God doing here? And what do we have to offer our kids? I mean, real experiences. We've got to let them experience the power of a living God in a real world, or they're going to walk into that real world thinking that there is no God with power in it. Experiences. I don't know what it means. I don't know how to move forward. I just know that we're going to lose this generation if we can't give them some real experiences of a real God in the real world. Somehow, some way. The Brother Andrew's pretty good at this. I love that Ashley White's leading worship. She's a senior in high school. Do you understand? She's being launched in, in, into God's work. She's going to be amazing. Praise God for a church that will let that happen. But that's one kid in the youth group of 40 and 50. They all need experiences. But they need to do something. They want to see something. Why can't we take them places? Why can't we show them what God is doing? Not just show them the video. Not just let them tweet it. We take them. Let them see the world. Let them see the mission field. Let them see the jails. Let them see the hospitals. Let them get good and scared for God. You understand? Let them take some risk. Kids love to take risks. Have you ever seen a kid that comes in with a mohawk? What's that about? 
She's just trying to feel dangerous. She's just trying to get a little bit, a bit of excitement. They long for that. We're God's people. We got nothing to give them but a trip to Kings Island in the summer. No wonder as soon as they can get out of here, they leave and never come back. Got to give them experiences. Guys, we owe it to you. But you got to step up too. My goodness. We can't just wait. We can't keep saying later on. Later never comes. Man, this is the only childhood that, that your children get. The only time that these kids have to be in high school. Only time they've got to be in college. If we're not on the ball now, we, we lose a generation. Do you understand? We, we lose a generation. Th that's what's at stake. I think we owe them uh, real knowledge of God, uh, real experiences, and real connection. I, I fear not just for the generation of young people, but for the, the, the culture around us that is now so disconnected People who actually think that, that a text conversation is a real conversation, that, that, that frightens me for the moment when somebody really needs somebody. For a moment when you really need a human touch, when you really want someone to laugh with you and not just LOL at you. Do you understand? We're created for, for connection. Connection to the living God and then connection to God's living people. I think as a church, we owe our kids genuine connections. They need us. They need a generation ahead of them to, to be present in their lives. You can't check out now. You can't say that you've raised your kids and you're done now. You don't understand. There's so many kids who don't have anybody. They need you. They need you in that Sunday school class, not just going through the easiest lesson you can come up with, but pouring your heart into their lives. You understand? This is the only chance they've got, the only chance you've got. I mean, that they need us present in their lives in such an amazing way that they need connection. They need to know that we love them. They need to know that we're with them. They need to know that we're praying for them. They need real connection. In church, on Sunday, on Sunday night, on Wednesday night, we just have to be that church that, that loves and really loves people. We love and really love one another, and we really love our kids. They just need that real connection. There are fewer and fewer places on earth where hearts and souls can really connect. If not here, where? Man, the, the task is as old as the earth to, to, to pass the faith along to the, to the emerging generation. It's, it's all of our job, whether you have kids or not. It's all of our job. In the year 1900, when Woodburn Baptist Church had 52 cents and fewer people than that, remember now, there were a number of churches in, Bowling, in Woodburn. There was a Presbyterian church, and there was a Methodist church, and several other Baptist churches. There were... Lots of churches in Woodburn in those days, but most of them died. You know that? Most of those churches died. By the grace of God and by God's faithfulness, Woodburn has managed to stay alive through another century, another hundred years. But you understand, we're as close to dead as anybody else. We are one generation 
away from extinction. If we don't manage to capture the youth of today with, with the gospel, I'll preach all of your funerals, and then they'll turn out the lights. You understand? We'll be done. We'll be done. So if the topic today is commitment, then understand, commitment is, is usually, at least initially, learned in families and from the generation that goes before. Uh, we owe it to this upcoming generation to show them what God's committed people look like and live like. Uh, we've got to be those people. Any final thoughts? Anything? We've got a family meeting tonight, of course, to accommodate a wild schedule this November. Next Sunday night is our Thanksgiving supper. Yeah, it scares me that you're, if you're not thinking about it, means you're not cooking. Uh, yeah, next Sunday night is Thanksgiving supper. Billy Lawrence is going to have this coming Wednesday. Uh, how many hams? Seven hams and? And, and ten turkey breasts, which means we need at least 17 people uh, ready to, to take meat home and then bring it back, please, cooked. Bringing it back is, is, is the key. And then also you need people to make dressing. Okay, and you need some people ready to help serve next week too. Okay, it's all going to be at South Warren. It's going to be a great, great night together. Invite your families, invite everybody. Let's just make this a great celebration of Thanksgiving. Uh, God has been so good to us. The following Sunday, of course, Sunday night will, will be care night, so a, a number of Sunday night activities coming up. So tonight we are off schedule but going to have our family meeting. There are a couple of things on the agenda, some of them pre pretty big items. So we'll take a look at that agenda. Be ready when the Franklin folks come in in just a few minutes. Uh, we'll take a moment and stretch our legs. Stand together and let's have a, a prayer of dismissal for the worship service. Brett Hightower, would you mind saying a, a, a word of benediction for us, please?